Well, good morning, everyone. You're doing okay? Good. Why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the New Testament, to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, as most of you know, we're in a series called Aliens. It's a study of this letter the Apostle Peter wrote to uh, Christians in the early church who he addresses as aliens in the world. Uh, because of their faith in Christ, because of their reverence for God, because of their desire to obey what God says is right and good, Peter explains to Christians that at times they're going to be, they're going to be misunderstood and uh, viewed by the world as aliens, foreigners, a peculiar type of people who just don't always fit in. And so we've been working our way through the opening chapter of his letter, and if you've missed any of those messages, uh, I really encourage you to go online, listen to it, or you can download it and listen in your car or on your iPod or whatever at some point, because Peter really builds on what he starts to say in verse 1, chapter 1, and all the way through. It's like a big run-on sentence in so many respects, but it's important to uh, get that backup information. But I figured we're just going to pick up where we left off last week. We ended with verse 16 in chapter 1, so we're just going to start right off here with what Peter says in verse 17, okay? He writes this in chapter 1, verse 17. He says to the church, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For, your, for you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the cre- creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Before we go on, let's pray. Our Father, we're grateful this morning for the opportunity to slow ourselves down intentionally and to quiet our hearts and minds and to join together as a community of faith, as your people, uh, to worship you and to um, submit ourselves uh, to your will and to your word. And we ask that you would teach us this morning, uh, open our hearts that we might hear and receive uh, what it is you you want us to know, and then give us the strength to apply it to our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we noted last week, um, in the first, two, the first 12 verses of this letter, Peter offers, he offers no directives to his readers in the church. He explains a lot, but uh, he doesn't give specific commands to anyone until he gets, in verse, gets to verse 13. Why is that? Well, it's because at the time, Christians were suffering intense persecution. They were the victims uh, of the injustice and violence of one person, Nero, the emperor of Rome. And because of what was happening, because of the pain and the brutality that the church was experiencing, Peter makes suffering a primary theme uh, in his letter. He talks about it in all five chapters. And being sensitive to what the church was going through, he opens the letter by affirming how, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we have been given new birth into a living hope. As sons and daughters... Uh, We have a guaranteed inheritance in heaven. We have divine protection. When trials enter our lives, and they do, uh, we have a a greater perspective. Uh, We realize that these trials are temporary, and they serve to prove and refine our faith. And ultimately, we know that in Jesus, we are eternally secure. And so as a result, uh, we are able to find joy in all circumstances because the realities of God's truth and grace uh, exceed anything the world offers, pleasurable or painful, Uh, good or bad. Therefore, Peter says, prepare yourselves for whatever life brings. 
Set your hope on the grace of God. Think intentionally. Think carefully. Uh, act as obedient children and be different. Be holy. And last week we talked about uh, what that means. But notice now as Peter goes on in verse 17, notice how he uses the term since, which is what? It's a conjunction, right? And as such, it grammatically links what he's about to say to his previous comments. And so, it's, again, it's like this run-on sentence for Peter. He's basically, he is continuing now with this idea of us as, as Christians being obedient children. And he does so by, once again, reminding us who God is and then reinforcing who we are. Let me explain what I mean. Peter writes this. He says, since you call on a father... Now, we've talked about this already, how um, as our creator, God, who has given us life itself, how he knows what is right and what is good and what is safe and what is healthy and what is best for us as human beings. And as a heavenly father, our heavenly father, he loves us way too much not to give us direction, um, not to set boundaries out for us, uh, because he wants to protect us from the, the pain and the consequences of sin. And sin... Uh, is just all about rebelling. It's a rebelling against God. It's about rejecting his direction uh, for our lives. And, and once I think, once we begin to understand that, um, then this concept of God as Father makes more sense and, and carries life-transforming implications. I mean, think about it. Uh, as a human being, who your Father is often makes a difference in who you are and what you do, Right? I mean, fathers give us life. They, they give us a name. They give us a standing in the community. They set before us a model of behavior. I mean, if your father is um, Prince Charles of England or Barack Obama or Vladimir Putin, chances are pretty good that that is going to define and determine, for all intents and purposes, gr and greatly influence uh, your life. But what if your father is greater and more powerful than all of those, those guys? What if God is your father? Wouldn't that change the way you think and behave? Shouldn't that drastically affect your life? You know, Scripture says that when we become Christians, you know, when we place our faith in Jesus, we experience what the Apostle Peter refers to here in verse 3. We experience a spiritual new birth. Um, we become children of God, sons and daughters, brought into, welcomed into God's family and graciously given all the legal rights, status, benefits, privileges, and responsibilities that go along with that. The Apostle John affirmed this very thing when writing uh, um, to the church. He said, um, he said, to all who did receive him, meaning Jesus, to all those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, in Christ... You are all children of God through faith. Now, just so that we're clear on this, Paul, Peter, John, they didn't come up with this idea of, of the fatherhood of God. It originated with Jesus. Uh, it was one of his most revolutionary teachings. Uh, he took a lot of heat for it because no one had suggested this kind of a thing before. But he asserted that God uh, isn't just our father in the sense that he, is, uh, that he created us, as he did the rest of the universe, but that he's our own personal father. I, he, he knows each of us intimately. He's intimately engaged uh, in our lives. When asked about prayer, for example, uh, Jesus told the disciples to address God as what? As our father in heaven. 
And over and over and over again, Jesus used this, this familial title of father to intentionally stress God's paternal-like love, uh, care, protection, uh, and availability to us. And it's interesting to me that, you know, Peter could have described the fatherhood of God in any number of different ways, but in this particular instance, he chooses a unique description. And he says, he says since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially. Now, what is Peter doing there? He's reminding us that not only is God our loving father, but he's also our what? Our impartial judge. So I was thinking about that this week, and, and I, I realized that Peter's use of the word impartial is, is pretty important, and here's why. Uh, in case you don't know, I have two children, I have two kids, and as a father, um, I love them equally. And as much as I've always wanted to be fair and objective, the fact is I haven't always been that way with them. For example, when they were younger and I'd ask them to do something, uh, it was hard not to compare their responses. You know, it was just too easy to say, uh, hey, Corey, you know, why don't you do your homework as, as willingly and as well as your sister does hers? Or Megan, why don't you vacuum your room as well as your brother? although there wasn't a lot of vacuuming going on anywhere in the house at that point. <laughs> Just be upfront about that. But, but even now, they're older. Even now, I'll say things like, hey, Meg, why don't you replace your car's brake light? I mean, Corey replaced his. Or Corey, why don't you call home as often as your sister? You see what I'm getting at? I mean, as, as sometimes as parents, we're not as equitable as we think. We, we have a tendency to grade on a curve. Uh, we render verdicts among our children based on comparisons. Well, Peter is, is he's, he's telling us, he wants us to know that, that, that our Father in Heaven doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. The Greek term he uses for impartial here literally means, literally translated is, no respecter of faces or no respecter of persons. It, it refers to a judge who doesn't make comparisons between people. He's, he isn't looking at everybody else in the room when pronouncing approval or disapproval. Here's my Ray K summary. Peter says, look, God is a perfectly just and totally objective father. He doesn't measure or compare us against our siblings when making judgments. He is fair. He is impartial. Which I tell you what, man, I'm really thankful for because, look, I don't want to get compared to, to Mother Teresa or to Billy Graham, right? I, I, I'm never going to measure up to those folks. And so I, I'm just glad I don't have to. I mean, I'm glad that I, I, the only one I answer for is me. And um, although I will say that that is at times in, in a somewhat intimidating thought. Because someday, uh, each of us will stand before God. And as a son, as a daughter, give an account of our life, our behavior, our obedience, or lack thereof. Alone, alone, we will stand uh, an answer to our Father and to his authority. And the Old Testament, Moses reminded the Israelites of how, he said, the Lord your God is great and mighty and awesome. He shows no partiality. He accepts no bribes. In the New Testament, in a letter to Christians living in Rome, the Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, God does not show favoritism. Each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. And as best as I can grasp it, you know, that just seems really fair to me. But um, what's the impact of that reality on our lives? Well, we'll talk about that in a second. But first, notice something else Peter reminds his readers of uh, related to God, namely that God is also our Redeemer. 
Verse 18, he says, For you know that it wasn't with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without, without blemish or defect. Now, in the ancient Greco-Roman world, the term we translate redeemed here was a slave term. It meant to purchase and set free. You see, um, in the ancient world, for a price, any slave could be bought and released from bondage. And if that were to happen to a person, then that, that freed person was then referred to as one who had been redeemed, purchased, and freed. Well, Peter takes this, this slave terminology and he applies it to Christians and he says to the church, he says, you have been redeemed, purchased, and set free. But the payment for your freedom <clears throat> wasn't made with silver or gold because really no amount of earthly wealth could cover the cost. And in, in a sense, he's saying, look, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates together couldn't pull enough financial resources to buy your freedom. It couldn't happen. They couldn't do it. Peter says, your freedom from slavery to sin and guilt was purchased with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And uh, with that, Peter shifts his, his thinking from Roman slavery back to Egyptian slavery. See, when the Israelites were in bondage, when they were captives in, in Egypt, and many of you know the account, God sent Moses, right, to Egypt, to Pharaoh, demanding he set the people free. And when Pharaoh refused, um, Egypt suffered a series of ten plagues, the last of which was the death of every firstborn child. And to protect the Israelites against this, they were instructed to sacrifice a lamb and sprinkle the blood of that lamb on the doorposts, the tops and the sides, of their homes, the doorposts of their homes. And then the angel of death would pass over and the sacrifice would provide rescue from judgment. And the sacrifice was a costly one because it wasn't just any lamb that was offered. It was, it was an unblemished male lamb without defect. In other words, it was perfect. In fact, in Exodus 12, uh, we're told how each family was to go out to choose this perfect lamb from within the flock and, and, and take it with them and keep it with them for four days. Four days. Why? To examine it carefully and make sure that it had no defects. And so they would. They'd take the lamb with them to their home and they'd care for it. Now, I have a hard time imagining what that was like because, you know, in our culture, the, you know, if that were to happen, it would be a little different. I, I'm guessing. I don't know. It seems to me, I think of the father going out, choosing this lamb, bringing it home. And the children seeing it and all of a sudden falling in love with it, right? And naming it Fluffy or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Because kids tend to get emotionally attached to these kind of things. It's like, I don't know if you've ever been to like a school fair or carnival when, when, the, when the kids win goldfish with a ping pong ball. You ever, you ever you've experienced this? They win this, this, this goldfish in a bowl and you've got to take it home. And you put it on the counter in the kitchen and they name it, they name it Goldie. And it swims around and around and around and in that nasty, funky fishbowl water for days and days. And, you know, despite the fact that you can't hold it, you can't cuddle it, you can't kiss it, you can't teach it to do tricks or anything, the kids just adore this fish and uh, are traumatized when it accidentally gets flushed down the toilet. <laughs> it's all hypothetical. But, um, well, imagine the level of attachment there would be to, to a young, white, cuddly little lamb named Fluffy. Fluffy. And yet on the evening of the fourth day, around twilight, Dad says, okay, bring Fluffy on over here. We've got to sacrifice Fluffy. 
And the kids are like, we got to what? Kids are crying. Mom's crying. Everybody loves Fluffy. He's the perfect little lamb. And the father says, listen, there's no choice. Judgment is coming. It's him or us. Fluffy or you. And so with great anguish, the father would do what, what had to be done. He would offer that perfect lamb as a sacrifice and then publicly display its blood on the doorposts of the home, causing divine judgment and death to pass over. With that in mind, look again at what Peter says. You were redeemed, purchased and set free with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Translation, Jesus was the perfect lamb of God, innocent, sinless, blameless. I mean, think about it. God the Father said, here is my son with whom I am well pleased. John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Demonic spirits said, he is the Holy One of God, and they feared him. Judas said, I've betrayed innocent blood. Pilate said, this man is innocent. I I find no guilt in him. The thief on the cross said, this man has done nothing wrong. A Roman soldier at the foot of the cross declared, surely this is the Son of God. I mean, everyone who knew him, everyone who had contact with him, ally and adversary, all recognized his moral integrity and his divine perfection. And that's why he was sacrificed. He was and is the true Lamb of God. His death paid the price we could never afford. Life for life, blood for blood, the innocent in place of the guilty, deity in the place of humanity, God in my place, God in your place. That is the currency of our redemption. God the Father knew what had to be done. He has purchased us and he has set us free. He is our redeemer. He is also our sovereign Savior. Peter goes on in verse 20, he says this, He, being Jesus, was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now, you know, if Peter doesn't explain this, if he doesn't mention this, one might be tempted to think that God was sort of caught off guard by all this, surprised by all that happened in the world and what happened to Jesus, never expected it. But Peter says, no, that's not it at all. He says, make no mistake. Before God created the world in his sovereignty, he knew what was going to happen. He knew what humanity would do. That if given the opportunity, given the choice, we would choose rebellion. And we'd mess up the creation. As individuals, we would choose to ignore and reject what God says is right and good and best, and we'd mess up our lives. But knowing what we would do, God, Peter says, God chose to send Jesus to fix the mess but even before the mess happened. You guys understand that? I mean, I kind of understand it, but honestly, I don't fully understand it, but just because I can't fully comprehend the vast wisdom and purposes of the infinite God doesn't make it not so. Really, here's my best, here's my best shot at understanding and explaining it. Imagine you're a kid going to Disney World. You're going to Disney World and you, with your parents, and your parents warn you to be careful. They say, look, don't lose your money, don't wander away and get lost, and don't overeat because you'll get sick. So what do you do? You're a kid. You do the opposite, right? You rebel. You do the opposite. You eat a bunch of junk food until you feel like barfing. Your money falls out of your pocket on Space Mountain, 
And then you wander off, and the security people have to, have to escort you to the lost and found kid department, wherever that is in Disney World. And when you arrive, you're amazed because your parents are there waiting for you. And they've got Pepto-Bismol tablets that they brought from home. And they got some extra cash for you to use the rest of vacation. And you ask them how they knew you were going to get sick and lose your money and get lost. And then they let you in on this little secret. They knew you'd do it all before you left Chicago. They knew you'd do it. And as children, I'm thinking most of us would be really impressed by that. Because not only... Not only did they know us really, really well, but they anticipated our needs, lovingly chose to take care of us no matter what happened, no matter what foolish things we did. Well, see, it's the same with God, our Father, only infinitely better. He knew you before you were born. He knew you, what you would do. He knew the mistakes that you'd make, the messes you'd be in. He, he anticipates every situ- situation we'll face, and, and he has provided... He provided Jesus to solve your and my, our, our deepest problems, all of us. And, and it was a secret, you see. It was a secret, but now you know. Now you know. Your heavenly Father was not caught off guard or surprised by all this. He knows the end from the beginning. He has a plan for the world. He has a plan for you in place. And I think the purpose, Peter is telling, the purpose for Peter telling us this is so that we can relax a little. So we can kick back a bit and not worry so much about life and about the future. He's saying, listen, whatever happens, remember, God is your father, your impartial judge, your generous redeemer, your sovereign savior. And then Peter reinforces who we are. He says, since this is all true, live out your time as what? As foreigners here, as strangers, as aliens. How do we do that? What does that look like? He says, well... Live in reverent fear of God. What does that mean? It doesn't mean we're terrified of God as if he's some kind of unpredictable lunatic deity. But instead, as his children, we respect him and we love him as as the father who has given us life and whose wisdom is worth listening to. And because he loves us and because we know he knows what's best for us and he provides for our needs, we honor his authority. We submit to him. We obey him. But that's not all. Peter goes on to say that because of, God, of who God is in verse 21, he says we are to what? Live every day as those who truly believe. Not like we just say we believe, but we really believe. And our lives demonstrate that belief in every way. And the term that Peter uses for belief here implies trusting. It implies having this, this confidence in and this reliance upon God for all things. In fact, Peter says, believe in God who raised Christ from the dead and glorified him. In other words, he's saying, if God has the power to do that for Jesus, you can be sure he has the power to raise and glorify you as well. And so at the end of verse 21, he says, because of all of this, because God is your father, your judge, your redeemer, your savior, he says, live a life full of faith and hope. Live a life full of faith and hope. Do you? Do I? Uh, I had an interesting experience recently. My wife, Margie, invited me to go on a retreat with her, a one-day retreat. Uh, And it was a silence and solitude retreat. So essentially, she wanted me to go with her so I didn't have to be with her or talk to her. I guess guess that's kind of how it works in those kind of retreats. 
And uh, uh, I had never been on one before. Um, so I said, sure, I'll, I'll go. We'll give it a shot. And so the retreat was held up at a Catholic seminary up in Mundelein. It's just beautiful property, beautiful old buildings. And um, the retreat started at 8.30 in the morning. So the silence began. And then you were given some instructions, some, uh, you know, some... Um, you know, some scripture verses to maybe read and think through and, and, and some advice on prayer. And, and then you were released and you could go anywhere on the campus uh, to find a place where you're alone and you're quiet for the rest of the day. No talking. And so uh, I went outside for a while and it was cold and then I, I found my way to the library, which is this big old building and it's just everything that you can picture an, a really old, beautiful library would be. You know, the main floor was very dark and it had all this heavy wood and heavy big tables with the green lamps on it. And, and so I went in, it was, it was gorgeous and we were only one or two people on the lower floor. And then in the corner uh, of the building were these... Um, Iron, black iron spiral staircases that took you up to the, I think there were five floors. So I, I took the staircase up to the second floor, and there wasn't anyone around, so I walked down this one aisle, and you could look down on the center of, of the library, and I'm just looking down the stacks, figuring, I think I could find a place to hide in one of these stacks. So I'm walking down, and I see, oh, there's this one here that had a window at the end, and this old rickety wood chair, and I thought, okay, I'll just go down here and sit for a while. So I went down there, put my stuff down, sat down on the chair, and uh, I took out my Bible, and I was just reading through some scripture verses, and, and um, trying to pray, and my mind is going all over the place, and I'm not used to that, and... And so I'll, I'll just be honest with you. At one point, I'm like, this is, this is crazy. <laughs> and I'm really, I was getting frustrated. I'm like, I should be, I'm wasting time. I should be back in my office writing and, 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 and doing all the wonderful things that I do every single day. And, you know, uh, because look at me, I'm so important. And, um, and so I was getting frustrated. And finally, at one point, I, I, I didn't say it out loud, but I said it in my head. I said, Lord, what am I supposed to be doing? What am I supposed to be doing? And at that very moment, I just glanced down, and right next to me, I didn't see it before, were, were uh, this volume of books. All the other books on the bookshelf were in Latin or French. This was the only volume that had, an Engli- had one English word on the binder, and the word said this, listening. <laughs> what am I supposed to be doing? Listening. 42 volumes, by the way. <laughs> Listening, 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 listening. I'm pretty dense. So, uh, coincidence? Maybe. But I'll tell you this, I shut my mouth for the rest of the day. And it ended up to be a really, really good experience. I would do it again in a heartbeat. But But during that time of quiet and solitude, I began to think about how, for so many people, uh, in our culture today, life is just so crazy. It's loud, it's busy, but not necessarily full. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, so many people are running around, running around, running around, doing as much as possible as a way to avoid what they might have to face if they slowed down for a while and were quiet. As human beings, we're really good at it. We're, we're good at denying what we sometimes feel inside. We avoid. We try and cover our sense of emptiness with packed schedules, and we're on the run from 
the early morning sounds of the alarm clock to David Letterman signing off on the late show. We just keep ourselves busy. We have cell phones and we have emails and we have texts and we have tweets all to keep us connected and constantly uh, occupied. We have apps to remind us where we're supposed to be and how we get there. We've got Facebook to assure us that we have 273 friends. But here's the deal. You know, when, when you power off and the schedule slows and things get really quiet, and you get really honest, there's no more denying. And the truth is, for many of us, life seems pretty darn empty. And in our humanness, there's this deep sense of sadness that comes with a life that lacks meaning, hope, and faith. Why? Because it's just a life that really hasn't been anywhere and isn't going anywhere. It's the daily monotony of, of carrying out a bunch of tasks that in the long run seem to have no ultimate purpose. It's an existence that went over, has made little if any difference. And some people, you know, come from a long heritage of that kind of emptiness, that, a long line of that emptiness. And I can't help but wonder if that was true of Peter, if that was the way it was for him, you know. He was born to a poor family living on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. He was a fisherman, so he had a job, he had a salary, he had a schedule, had a family, had responsibilities, but wasn't necessarily fulfilled. And his soul was searching for more, for something, for someone. And then one day he meets Jesus. Jesus who spoke truth to him, to demonstrate, who demonstrated love and grace, and who gave Peter's life purpose and meaning. And then suddenly this, this fisherman was filled with faith and hope. Things that would, that would compel him and energize him to step out and impact his community, his region, his world, to impact history as a follower of Jesus and a leader of the church. And so Peter at this point was no doubt concerned for others who lacked faith and hope. He was burdened for men and women who, as he says in verse 18, had an empty way of life handed down to them from their ancestors. I mean, he talks as if emptiness is inherited. Maybe it is. But whatever the case, Peter wanted more for those people, for those who were empty and were going through the monotonous motions of daily life with a sense of desperation. He wanted them to know and experience the faith and hope he found in Jesus. But see, Peter realized that even as Christians in the church, sometimes the pain, the brokenness, and the monotony of life can get to us. He realized that. It gets to us like anybody else. You know, we get down, we get discouraged. And in the loud, busy, chaotic confusion of it all, we can very easily forget who we are, why we're here, we can lose sight of the wonderful things that our Father in Heaven has given us in Jesus and all the promises He's made to us. You see, that's why Peter writes these words to the church. He says to all of us, and especially those who may be teetering on the edge of despair, he says, listen, listen. Do not be conformed to the world around you. Be different. Remember who God is your loving Father, your impartial judge, your generous Redeemer, your sovereign Savior. And live as aliens, live as strangers. How? Revere God Almighty. Believe and trust in Him. And by all means, be filled with faith 
and hope no matter what happens. May God grant us the ability to be that kind of people. Let's pray. Our Father, I am the first to confess to you this morning that I allow life to, um, to be chaotic and, and loud, keeping myself busy, um, preoccupied, perhaps because when I slow down enough and listen and reflect, um, I learn things that I don't necessarily want to learn. And sometimes the truth is hard. We'd rather avoid it than engage it. But I pray that none of us in the room this morning would, would, would do that, that we would, we would have the courage to face the truth, that outside of you, life is empty, lacking purpose and meaning. Uh, we are all searching as human beings for something more than just living, working, and dying. We sense there's something more to our existence. We long to know the truth. Jesus brings the truth to us. He is the sacrifice for our rebellion against you, our Father. He paid the price we could never pay. He lived the life we could never live. And he offers us forgiveness of sin. Um, I pray this morning that we would accept it and in so doing, experience the faith and hope in you. And we worship you and we give you thanks for the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who takes away ours. We offer this time to you in his name. Amen. Uh, one of the things I just I want to point out in closing about this letter Peter wrote, he wrote it to Christians in the church who were suffering. You know, they were being persecuted, they were losing their, their homes, their, their possessions, their families, they were losing their lives. It was hard, you know, and sometimes as Christians we think, yeah, we become a Christian, everything gets hunky-dory. That's not the way it works. We live in a broken world that never changes. What changes is our understanding of that world and how God has rescued us from it. Uh, and gives us life eternal. And um, I hope you understand that. And if you're going through some rough uh, times in your life following the service, some of our prayer team folks will be down here in front. They're willing to talk with you and pray with you. But one of the things Peter says at the end of that section we just looked at, uh, he says, um, we have faith and hope in what? Faith and hope in God, yeah? Not faith and hope in my good works, not faith and hope in my efforts at trying to make life better, not faith and hope in... My, my, my performance, faith and hope in God because he has offered us, graciously offered us life through Jesus. It's about grace. It's about Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. I hope you understand it. If not and you want to talk to somebody about it, come down front. Our, our, our folks will talk to you as well. Okay? Come back next week. We're going to continue with the, the, the study. Hopefully you're finding it helpful. I know that I am. But let me pray for you as, uh, as we uh, dismiss. And now, Lord, as we go from this place, as your people, we go with a great sense of, of meaning and purpose and direction, um, worshiping you as our creator, our father, our judge, our redeemer, our savior, recognizing who you are, remembering who we are, your people, sons and daughters, uh, welcomed into the family with all the rights and privileges that go with it. Help us to live our lives in such a way that we honor you as our Father and we point others to you that they might know your love and grace as well. And so now may your hand of peace rest on your people. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.